Hey folks, you are listening to Always Be Watching. It's the podcast where we talk about, yeah, you know what it's all about. Folks, we'll talk to you in just one sec. Hey, this is Always Be Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. Chris Yates, you're the other person I'm talking to. Hi, Dan. It's great to be here. Look, I came to the intro and I thought, look, I could say what the podcast is all about, but why even bother describing the most popular podcast on the internet? <laughs> I always expect you to say, um, only I may dance while I dance during the intro there, but yeah, you've never <laughs> given me that one yet, but I expect it there. Um, I'll tell the people what it's about, Dan. It's about you and me. We're talking about all the things that we watch. Uh, we get together in a very casual type scenario, as we've done in our real life for the past um, 15 years or so, but now for the greater good, we do it in front of microphones so that all the people may hear about the things that we've been watching and the recommendations that we have. You, a TV professional of some of some note, me, a um, casual uh, consumer of the product. Of some note. Of some note, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's loose to call me a TV professional, but sure, let's go for it. I'm just building you up, Dan, to, to take you down when I start criticizing the things you like. I'm going to talk first about the thing that I've been watching the most, which is absolutely something that I wish you would watch because I think you would get so much out of this. <laughs> no, really, I, this is like a Chris Yates documentary if I've ever seen one. It is called Feels Good Man, and we'll talk about it after a clip. It became a meme. I didn't even know what a meme was. There were all these boys trying to own each other on the message boards. In drops Pepe, right for the taking. He had gone dark. The white supremacist movement has taken over Pepe the Frog. Okay, feels good, man. It's about Pepe the Frog. Do you remember Pepe? Of course. He was the lovable little scoundrel that became the icon of the far right and white supremacists everywhere. I've got a funny story about Pepe the Frog. It's not quite as um, it's not quite as damaging as what the one you're about to tell me is. But I, in fact, had um, purchased online a Pepe the Frog T-shirt, which took yes. some time to arrive. And by the time it had, it was indeed yes suspected that I, from that point, was a white supremacist on account of having <laughs> the Pepe the Frog shirt, even though it was absolutely news to me and pointed out when I was wearing it um, in public somewhere now it's actually perfect that you told that story because that t-shirt and other pepe related clothing is featured within this documentary and the very problem they had with it <laughs> which is people like you ordered it at the very early stages but then suddenly <laughs> this cartoon frog became an icon of the far right they couldn't sell those shirts anymore so they've, got this <laughs> they've got this large uh, garage filled with t-shirts that they just had to get rid of you can't give it away to charity either no i, I, I assume not no. Okay. So to those who aren't familiar with Pepe by name, you've certainly seen this icon. Essentially what happened was you got this cartoonist named Matt Fury. He's drawing these dumb little cartoon strips as part of this thing called Boys Club, which is you've got four like slacker stoner characters who are grotty boy animals who have a share house together and they do grotty boy things together. Anyway, there's this one strip with the sort of frog type character in it who's named Pepe and he's peeing, but... You know, occasionally, and it's something I haven't really seen for a number of years, but I used to see it a bit. There'd be those guys who, when they go to a urinal, have their pants like around their ankles rather than... <laughs> My kid does that. It's hilarious. Yeah. Like little kids, understandable. <laughs> but when you see a grown man do it, like, what's that about? 
Anyway, there's a comic strip where you've got Pepe who someone, one of, one of the other housemates walks in, sees Pepe is one of these trow dropping people. And, you know, the thing is, why would you do that? And his response is, feels good, man. And that's, that's the vibe of Pepe. But that yeah. clip, like that sort of frame of him saying, feels good, man, got adopted by the internet. It's one of these things where 4chan got a hold of her and any time that people are responding to stuff, you'd occasionally see a response coming back with a Pepe logo, Pepe face saying, feels good, man. And it wasn't just a 4chan thing. Like Pepe was everywhere across the internet. What this documentary is about is about Matt Fury, who's created this cartoon. It suddenly goes wide. It becomes a meme on the internet. He's like, I don't know what a meme is. And suddenly it's like this sort of fun little thing that's happening in his life where his creation has become part of internet folklore. He at some stage decides he wants to take uh, capitalize upon this, makes t-shirts and all that kind of thing, but then things take a very dark turn. The Pepe character becomes a figurehead of the far right. Now, I'm not going to explain how that happens, but what's really cool about this documentary is that it's very much about a passion project, like Matt Fury's never going to get rich doing the Boys uh, Club cartoon, but you know, it's a passion. It's something he does. He's just a cartoonist. But then suddenly on the sort of rise of the internet, like you and I, Chris, we're kind of early internet type people. Like I think we were in there. Yeah, pretty early. And I'd met you, I think 2004, 2005, 2005. Both of us then, like we were pretty engaged online people. But for a lot of people, like they really started coming online maybe a couple of years after we did. Like it was really when the iPhone came out that the internet suddenly became a thing that was omnipresent and everyone was really able to access it. Like, ease of access suddenly became so much more uh, possible thanks to people having smartphones and screens and internet access on the go. The internet changed dramatically. But with that, with the influx of people coming online, it means that internet behaviors change. And you see this with Pepe, where Pepe went from being a lovable rogue thing that people are using on cool internet sites, like your 4chan type things. But then the normies start discovering Pepe and think, hey, Pepe is really cool. And then they start embracing that. But then how does 4chan respond to the fact their icon has suddenly been stolen from them? And how do they subvert the character? And through the character of Pepe, we actually learn how the internet has changed and evolved over the last 20 years to the point where you see a character like Pepe go through the various phases that I think is symbolic of where the internet was going through all that time. So through the Pepe character, we kind of learn a lot about what a meme is, we learn about how characters evolve, but also through that we look at how memes are reflective of online culture and how online culture in itself is responsive to the broader culture at large and how that flows back through this cartoon creation. It's a really fascinating documentary that'll explain so much about the world that we live in right now all through a really dumb cartoon frog. It's fantastic. I can't wait to see it, Dan. I'm embarrassed I haven't already, but um, yes. Now that you've explained to me what it is, I will definitely check it out. The doco, it's currently playing in cinemas, so you can see it at the Golden Age Cinema in Sydney. But you're probably like, hey, look, I live in a state that doesn't have cinemas because, you know, Victoria at the moment, no cinemas. But there's a way to watch it online, legally, Chris. Excellent. Which is not how I watched it initially because I was desperate to see this thing and I may have seen it a few weeks ago. But if you are interested in seeing it in a legitimate way, the streaming service, DocPlay, it has it. If you are interested in checking out DocPlay, I'd also recommend that as of, I think, this afternoon as well, there's a Alex Gibney documentary that has just dropped that's looking at the uh, issue with COVID in the United States and the government's lack of reaction in terms of handling it properly and whatnot. 
It's the big documentary at the moment. You're going to hear a lot about it in the next few days. But anyway, it's like literally launching day and date with the US. It's on Hulu in the US and here in Australia, it's going to be on DocPlay. So that's two good documentary reasons to check out a streaming service. And if docu- documentaries aren't your thing, like, you know, just cancel it after that. But, you know, it's definitely two things that would get me signing up. Now, Chris, you were going to talk to me about Spaceballs, but you're like, Spaceballs, who cares about that when there is a little thing in the world called The Mandalorian? <laughs> but who cares about The Mandalorian? Like, you know, we all saw that. But have you seen the behind the scenes of The Mandalorian is the question that Chris Yates is asking. And the answer to many people is no. Let's hear a clip. <laughs> The enthusiasm is infectious. So much of this process is about problem solving and making breakthroughs. Everyone is coming with their own experiences to a galaxy that can support it. And then also have a group of filmmakers who were not afraid to jump in. It's hard to believe all these years later, there's such energy around new stories in this world. Okay, so this is the behind-the-scenes making of The Mandalorian. It's an eight-episode, half-hour-ish um, series, and each episode contains a lot of behind-the-scenes actual footage shot while they were making the show, but it also contains uh, various roundtable talking heads between, um, helmed by John Favreau, the executive producer of the series, I don't know what he was, and then various different uh, groups of people that worked on it. So there's one with just the directors, there's one with um, the producers, there's one with artists, all this kind of stuff. There's a bit of variation in the season, but that's about the crux of it. Um, sounds quite dull but what we're talking about what you're forgetting dan is that we're talking about star wars this is quite possibly the greatest three hours of star wars documentary nerd geekdom that i've ever seen have you seen it dan okay before i answer that question for you and i know that you are desperate enough i've seen this because you asked me before we started talking about this i am eight episodes half an hour each is it close to the point of being almost as much mandalorian as there is behind the scenes tv series about mandalorian (laughs) I think it's pretty close, right? It might be there might be about an hour less of the making off, but I think um, that's pretty good. And I sat down and I was like, I'm going to watch the first one of these, and that'll probably do me. Like, there's only so much I can probably there's only so much interest I have in the sort of filmmaking aspect of this. How wrong I was. This is phenomenal stuff. So the first thing, aside from all the great insights from the directors, all of whom are very interesting people, great directors in their own right, some of them getting their first opportunity to do um, something of this scale, others slumming it like. Um, Taika Waititi, who's probably uh, a bit above it now, but makes and and that's joke too in the in the um, actual thing. But you know, he's obviously just as enthusiastic about being involved with this as everyone is. I think from a, the real mind blowing moment for me, Dan, is the volume. So this is why I wanted to ask you about this because I wanted to see if you've seen the episode. I think it's episode four where we start getting really into the nitty gritty of the technical um, makeup of how this how this show was made, and it blew my mind, Dan blew my mind so i haven't seen episode four i have seen the first episode and i do plan to come back to it i just haven't yet what i'm interested in from this is exactly what you're talking about which is some of the technical information because what i'm fascinated with mandalorian is and i'm not sure what the process is called but usually in tv the thing that we've seen on tv since you know black and white television has been this sort of thing they call like reprojection So just when you see someone in a car and they're driving along and you see the fake backgrounds behind and everything looks a little bit fake and whatnot, in Mandalorian, they're using a similar process, but instead of rear projection, they have this like multi-million dollar LED screen that kind of wraps around the stage that the artists are performing in. So I would have expected when you're watching the behind the scenes of the Mandalorian, you'd see pictures of 
quote-unquote Pedro Pascal as the Mandalorian, but my understanding yeah. is that he wasn't really all that much. No. But you see, the, you see Mando sitting in his, uh, in his spaceship. I forget what it's called. Um, Boba Fett's is called Razor Slave. Crest. Razor Crest. Cool. So he's in Razor Crest, but like you just see the sort of, um, what would you call it? Like the captain's area where like, you know, the pilot the cockpit. sits. The cockpit. <laughs> all, the, all the technical <laughs> terms. You just see the cockpit and then I expect to see green screen behind there as they inserted that in afterwards. Not so, because with this technique, they actually have this really cool looking effect that I've never seen anything this cool looking on a behind the scenes before because the it cool stuff amazing. gets added afterwards. But in this, like they're literally sitting in front of these LED screens where you see space all around them. And like literally you're acting against the background. So it's not the fake world that I think most actors are used to performing in front of with ping pongs, balls sort of hanging there exactly. so you can see where people are and that kind of thing. But it's kind of actual realized like computer animation. Yeah, the insights, cool. the insights from the actor are amazing. So basically, yeah, they call the room the volume, okay? And so the volume is this basically soundstage hanger size thing, wall to ceiling, floors included, LED screen. So it's completely and Episode four, they talk about this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's complete, completely 360. Um, they're able to shoot from every angle. So, of course, you know, when you're doing green screen or rear projection or these kind of things, the you lose a sense of perspective, you know. So, And that's when some of this stuff becomes obvious when you kind of move from one shot to another shot. The background, the background sort of doesn't really change. Um, with this, it does. Everything that you can kind of imagine happens. They can shoot a sunrise scene for like six... They can spend six hours shooting a sunrise scene that looks outdoor. Every single shot, I think from the Mandalorian was shot in this space. So there's no outdoor filming at all. It is incredible. Even when you're just watching the behind the scenes footage, it's impossible to see where the end of the screen, you know, where the realistic stuff. So they have this minimal amount of actual set pieces, like where they got to walk through some trees or something. There'll be a few trees there, but the sets are just so minimal. Um, we get such a detailed breakdown of it. Like I was kind of, they, they glimpse at it in the first few, but then by the time you get to episode four, you know, you sort of get the entire history of um, Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic and how they kind of put stuff together, how that all worked, how they've always been kind of pushing at the forefront of technology. Stuff like, you know, even episode one, The Phantom Menace had the biggest, um, you, you know, like we all know about the CGI atmospheres and how weird that was, but it had more miniatures than any other film in history. So there's all these things that like... Um, build towards this idea of what they've actually done for the Mandalorian is groundbreaking. It's brand new and it's going to clearly, it's going to change the way cinema is filmed, like not just big action stuff, but it seems like everything they talk about advantages, exactly like you say, you know, actors actually get to act against backgrounds and it's not just backgrounds. It's the action that's happening in the scenes have all been, you know, created and rendered and they're there and they can, they can bounce off that. But as well as that, you've got, um, the, you've got the fact that you can they can walk straight out of the room, watch what they've just filmed, and then do pickups of the shots like instantly. They can go in and do a whole day's worth of pickups of different episodes by just literally changing the channel on the screens behind them, and um, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. And it was really it seems like it was really John Favreau that wanted to pull all these things together. Apparently, George Lucas had been trying to build this for the last kind of ten years at the bottom of his of, of his ranch. But, um, you know, technology made it too expensive. Like LED screens are so cheap now that they've kind of only been able to get to this point where they're able to do it. Incredible mind-blowing stuff. Like, um, and, then, and then on top of that, so you've got the computer game engine technology, which is relatively new too to animated films, which is what um, they talk about it a lot in the Frozen 2 documentary that I watched. But it's also in... Um, the Frozen 2 documentary that's very similar to this. It's like an eight-part exploration of Frozen yeah. 2. Yeah. 
Well, and, and I was expecting this to be more like that, but it's really, it's much different because this is definitely based more around the conversation and the nerd. And whereas the frozen one is, is fully on the scenes, fully um, following the production as it goes with a little bit of talking heads. But um, there's some, uh, yeah. So, so on top of that, you've got this computer game engine. So that allows them to actually film and rechange shots and stuff. They're not having to re they could, it renders in real time, like the same way you're in a first person video game and you look around and everything gets made so you can so they can change the angles that they're doing things on the fly it's all this great technology stuff but the thing that really stands out is you know the fact that all this actually gives the director it, it's almost like returning it to kind of classic direction and you know when they actually used to build sets and when they actually used to have everything on there because the director gets to actually make flight on the fly decisions based on what's happening what's looking how the sets are set up it's just incredible stuff it was so beyond and i think it really gives them you know it obviously gives a mandalorian that cinematic aspect without having them having to have spent a, a, a movie budget on every episode and you know th one of the criticisms i guess i had with the mandalorian was when it got a little some of it was a little bit cheesy and some of it was a little bit corny and those kind of moments what, stuck out and corny so much in a star wars production no yeah 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 like like a little bit of it, it just got there was a couple of episodes that were a bit too tv i think for for the for the mood of the rest of them, they just seemed a little bit less cinematic and a little bit more like television, but they still looked so cinematic. And I think that's mm. the, you know, I think I was a bit harsh on those episodes just because of the spectacle is so well done that you're kind of expecting this cinema level or the, or this feature film level um, story and and direction and everything the entire time, which you know, understandably for a TV series that was shot so quickly and on such a budget, you don't get necessarily that every episode, but what you do get is just this incredible, like there's nothing about it that doesn't look like I would argue better than any of the things in the, um, you know, in the recent, uh, in the, in the sequels and especially the newest sequel. It's just, it's just mind blowing stuff. Okay. I'm going to just rant really quickly a little bit longer, Dan, the other great takeaways for it were, um, I was going to message you last night, but I know it's a hassle to find the clips to play. Um, Werner Herzog talking about the baby, um, as if he's describing his own baby and just like with this just gushing sense of love and just like it was it was just phenomenal um, is, a, is, a, is an absolutely beautiful moment that, that gets away from some of that tech stuff. Um, the, the combination of the puppetry and how that all works in there is just amazing. And, you know, hearing the actors talk about how that worked and how much easier and better that made their performances. Um, is fantastic as well. But the um, other thing is just Dave Filoni, man. He is just such, he is an insane next level Star Wars nerd of the most incredible caliber that I was just blown away with his level of, um, you know, how much he responded, how, how much he knew about everything and how much he was able to, to really build into it. Um, the, the folklore and how much of that they really did uh, dive into, you know, there's great expositions about where some of the weapons, you know, that they, they took stuff out of the, um, they took stuff out of the Christmas special, you know? It's not a Christmas special. It's a holiday special. There's no Christmas in a Star Wars universe. <laughs> There's odes to like so many. They did as many random things. There's that um, Stormtrooper carrier that only came out as a toy that they um, recreated for this thing as a nod to the, to the many kids that bought the Stormtrooper carrier but never were able to see it in a film. Like the way it ties in all that kind of stuff. It just gives you such a massive appreciation for that. Like I'm not a... You know, I'm not I'm not that level into my Star Wars lore, and um, certainly I haven't watched much Clone Wars or anything like that. But to see how much detail and how much love they put into all those aspects of it is just mind blowing. Yeah, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the technology that they were using. Uh, what did you call it? it was called the the volume. The volume. 
So the volume is essentially being used. You said it was going to change Hollywood. It's already changing Hollywood. I was reading an article this right. morning talking about the production of the new The Batman movie, which is the new Warner Brothers film yep. currently in production. They're using the volume. So wow. I think the guy who's the cinematographer on Mandalorian is also working on The Batman. And so wow. he's taken a he's lot of- He's an Australian of, guy. Yeah. If it's the same guy, it could be a- Yeah. Guy, yeah. Th- yeah. So anyway, there's that sort of knowledge sharing happening at the moment. So wow. you're going to start seeing like this technology being used, I guess, in everything going forward. Uh, the other thing was uh, with the volume because of COVID. Of course. It means that productions like The Mandalorian are actually so much safer yeah. to produce stuff for than a lot of other things which require a lot of technicians on set at the same time. Because effectively you just scale down that production. You've got that LED that's providing the backgrounds to totally. it all. Like it's, it's actually sort of made uh, The Mandalorian possible. So season two will be debuting, what, in like about a week oh and a half's God. time. And that's purely because they were able to like finish it out because COVID. And then I think they're starting season three, shooting it like sometime pretty soon because they can go into the volume and keep on giving it a go. I hope they just keep filming it forever, Dan. Well, I mean, they very well made. <laughs> I mean, where there's Star Wars and there's money to be made, off it goes. Uh, but one of the things I thought was fascinating watching this is there is that roundtable element of it. And I would say if I was to make a criticism of the first episode, and I don't know how much this really sort of reverberates through the following episodes, but the very first episode, I don't think there's enough of a through line. So yeah. while you're watching it, like it just seemed like a hodgepodge of stuff that they kind of jammed together, like any sort of electronic press kit that you usually see. Like it, it didn't really feel like there was a like narrative being threaded through. But the roundtables provide some of that, but it's not quite clear, mm. I think, going through. But the roundtables are actually kind of interesting because John Favreau, like this is years ago, like just after Swingers and he had his film mm-hmm. Made, which was like his second film like roughly around like the time of made, he had a TV show on the air called Dinner for Five. Uh-huh. And Dinner for Five, the entire premise of it was John Favreau sits at a table with five people and that's celebrities from all over the place and he just chats them about like their lives and whatever's going on. It was like a cute little half hour thing and I love that program. I thought it was great. But it's interesting seeing him adapt that exact same style yeah. to the Star Wars universe going through. Now, John Favreau's had a weird career that's taken him to all sorts of different types of places, but he's gotten in with Disney and a lot of his work at Disney is about pushing that technology totally, forward. Totally. So you think about what he's done here with the volume and you were saying that he was the person that really helped this sort of come to life. The previous thing he did for Disney, in fact, he was working on it while working on season one of The Mandalorian, was the live action The mm. Lion King. And the way they filmed that was to create the 3D environments in the same way that the volume uh, exists. Yeah. But when they were actually filming it, they're all sitting there with like VR helmets totally. on and they're operating in the environment of the Lion King. It's like a real 3D environment that they're shooting in. And it's not just a matter of setting up a shot and then like digitally compositing all the stuff afterwards. Because they created an entire 3D world, they can move the camera in this environment and film it like a real movie, but like within a three in know, a virtual reality space. It's mind-blowing, right? Fascinating. And, and so they talk about The Lion King, but they also talk about The Jungle Book, which is the movie he made that before. So that was the one where he sort of started with this yeah. kind of stuff. And there was a lot more of the, um, you know, the green tracking screens and all. And, and basically the process of The Lion King was how do we make what we did in The Jungle Book easier? And then The, the Mandalorian was like, obviously, you know, a bit more... Um, well, the Mandalorian was because I think they had so much content to make. It was like, okay, what can we invest in? How You know, we finally can split, spread the budget of these like eight episodes or 12 episodes, whatever it is. I think it's eight, right? Over, over the, you know, we can build this thing and then we can make all the episodes inside it and it's going to, and each one is going to cost, but you know, so much less if we just have this whole thing there. So it's just 
you know, the, the fact that it was a TV series and not a movie, I think, made it possible to get it made and to get the whole thing. Because there was, a, you know, there's a little bit more um, room to play around in the margins is one of the ways he described it, you know, with the Star Wars universe. And there was a ways to kind of be a bit more experimental with this than what you would with a film. And that's a shame, you know, that's a shame on many levels because I think, you know, we, we can, I think that the films, the sequels have suffered from their stodginess and from the fact that, you know, there were so many decisions that got made that were then, you know, that couldn't then get changed or there were things that changed as, as they were going that caused the whole thing to fall over. So, you know, it's kind of, a sh it's almost a shame that these, that the sequels didn't happen after the Mandalorian in a way that we could have been able to one, get Dave Filoni to make all of them, if not one of them, or at least be consulting on them all. And, um, and, and two that, that, you know, I can't only imagine what they would have had with this, but obviously we've got a lot more Star Wars to come down the track. So we're going to get to see that played out in these things, but yeah, amazing stuff. Now, these shows, because they are really propaganda for Disney and this one specifically for Star totally. Wars, I think it's important to look at the messaging that you're receiving from these. I've only watched the first one, but so much of that first one is about myth building around Dave Filoni. And oh, come on. Who no, is, no, what his no. journey was to get to Star no, Wars. No, no, no. And if you that. think about a lot of the... Well, a lot of the marketing like pre-Mandalorian was very much about Dave Filoni as well and telling that exact same story. And it really feels like this is Disney setting yeah. them up so that George Lucas obviously isn't involved anymore, but they want to have someone who seems like a fan who's out there guiding the Star Wars universe. And I've clearly latched onto the Dave Filoni story to try yeah. to build that up and have some myths running. But Dave I love Filoni. that because I think, I think it's right. You know, like I think if, if somebody, somebody has got to be doing that, right. Somebody has got to be essentially the showrunner or whatever on this stuff. Somebody has got to be the one making sure that everything is, it fits in and making sure that everything gets fact check. And he does it on such an insane level, but you're right. Of course, you know, like everybody comes off looking very good in this as they always do. It's, it's really <laughs> interesting seeing so much Kathleen Kennedy, you know, because you don't see her often get interviewed and stuff, or I, I certainly haven't seen a lot of her in, um, first person. She's in this thing a lot, you know, she's a lot around. She's not in the first episode. No, but she's in, um, I think that one's cause it, the first episode is mostly just the directors. Right. So I think as it kind of goes on yeah. there, um, but she, she really runs a lot of conversations and she really puts, um, you know, she talks a lot about more of that stuff. That's not so interesting to me, like how it all got made, but she does, uh, how, you know, the business side of how it all got made, but that she does definitely talk about how Filoni came in. But the best bit of Filoni trivia was that he started as a King of the Hill animator. He was an animator on King of the Hill, yeah. which I never realized. And then from there, you, you know, did Nickelodeon stuff and that. But there's, interestingly, too, there's also shots. There's shots of Lucas on the set of The Mandalorian. Like there's shots of him yeah, no, I sitting that. there with Favreau and stuff. So, I mean, I think that's kind of cool that he obviously still gets to be involved. John Favreau tells a funny story about how, you know, he's he's asking George where the, um, if he recognizes where the, um, the late, the like giant cattle prod that Mando uses to get rid of the beast that's hanging off his thing. He's like, Do you know where we got that from? And Lucas is like, No, I'm not sure where that came from. And he's like, It's from the holiday special. And he's, and he just sort of looks at him and shakes his head, like, You, know, uh, <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> but you know, that sort of stuff's cool. But it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, it's interesting to think that he, still must have some kind of, you know, he's still allowed on the set, I guess, when they want to do something and shows up, which is really funny. I did get the feeling that the couple of times that he did appear on set is definitely when they filmed that footage and definitely made sure that was included in the, <laughs> yeah, probably right. the behind the scenes of the Mando. Uh, one of the things I do like in it is, and look, this is the thing. So like the Dave Filoni mythology building in the first episode is pretty intense, but they do hear from some of the other directors. So you mentioned Taika Waititi's in there. They give some time for Deborah Chow mm. to talk about her background and how she came to the thing. Again, this is a very strong marketing push because Deborah Chow, suddenly they've got a woman of color who is involved in the Star Wars myth building, which is 
great from a PR perspective, you know, good for equality and yeah, yada, yeah, yada, yeah. yada. But they definitely want to be at that messaging out there and make sure that people know where she's coming from and why this is a thing. Particularly because it's going to be her that I think is making the Obi-Wan TV series. Yes. So she's going off to that. So a big thing that they're doing with this Mando series is it's kind of like an audition for yeah. a lot of directors to like prove their sort of value with it and they'll go off and make other Star Wars properties. So the person I really want to see do something is uh, Rick Famiglia. Man, he is cool. Who's the guy who directed the second episode. And like, I kind of thought the best episodes were the ones that he did. Like he did two episodes, I think, from the first yeah, season. Yeah, the second one. He did the one with the Jawas at the beginning. Which is amazing, which was like, which took it over the yeah. point of like, okay, this is going to be, like the first one was all big spectacle and Werner Herzog and cool. But yeah. that. It was fine, but like yeah, that, that one. Yeah, that was the one that really nailed it for me too. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember what the other one he did was. Yeah, but anyway, like you hear him talk about this and I don't give him as much time as the other guys, but he suddenly, you definitely sense the passion coming through. And if you haven't seen his movie Dope, I haven't. you got to check it out because, man, that film is just rad. It's very, very First cool. note I made was to look at whatever else he had made and done it again. But, you know, there's a, it's interesting you mention that. Like it's a very, it's a diverse group of the six directors that do it. Very diverse. Um, not just mm. tokenly so. And also, you know, I think it's, it's, it's that thing where like, oh, you know, amazing when you bring in people that do have different perspectives, have come from different places and do have a different uh, approach to this stuff. You know, shock horror, something good comes from it. You know what I mean? Like there's kind of like, it really did spell out a lot of the reasons why The Mandalorian was so good to me. Like it's kind of like, it wasn't a coincidence. I mean, it wasn't just a big happy accident that it all worked like that. It was, um, there's a lot of factors that went behind the decisions that were made. Um, more so than, you know, beyond just the sort of scripting and the choice of, of casting and all that kind of stuff. You know, there were a lot of really smart decisions made that really gave this thing what it was. And, you know, even the hit and miss parts, sure, it's got them. And that's probably what's going to happen when you hodgepodge something together like this. But overall, it really spoke to kind of why it was such a success for me, I reckon. Okay, so that's Chris Yates having drunk the Star Wars <laughs> Disney Kool-Aid. Well, not at all. Like, I'm totally, on, you know, like, it's totally Mandalorian. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely cynical about some of the other stuff. And like I say, I'm not swallowing every second of that series down either. But, it, like, man, if that's the direction we're going to head with Star Wars, I'm pretty happy to say that's a pretty good direction. Yeah, things do feel pretty uh, comfortable at the yes. moment in a way that I certainly can't <laughs> say I felt that way with JJ doing episode nine. Oh my God. Now, Chris Yates, you can find that show on the Disney Plus. It's uh, dis- it's hard to find. It's called Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian. Yeah, which I assumed was just like a photo gallery of pictures of The Mandalorian or something. But there you go. And 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 yeah. I was and it's weird because the Frozen one's not even branded that way. Obviously, they're going to do a lot of these Disney Gallery things. But I typed in Disney Gallery because I knew that was the name of it, and I expect to see that and the Frozen one. But <laughs> no, they just called the it something else. So weird. Very. Strange. All right, shut me up, Dan. All right, Chris. Let's move on. Yes. We got one final thing. You were talking about diversity. I'm like, what's diversity? Let's go to the UK and watch an all British cast on a movie called The Host. Have you ever done anything like this before? I've never done this over Zoom. Obviously, we're not physically together, but there's no reason why Spirit can't communicate over the internet. Nothing's going to happen. Visualize us sitting in a circle. Spirit, we invite you to use us to pass on any communication. Is there anyone there? Please come forth. What was that? Amy, was that you? I heard it. I heard something. I think there's something here. So, Chris, this is a Shudder original. It's a movie, but it only goes for, like, I think it's exactly 60 minutes. Perfect. You may remember a conversation we had on this very podcast with friend of the show, Melanie Tate, 
She was saying that the one thing she really hates uh, watching is Zoom TV programs. Yes. I'm very much on board with that. I cannot stand it. And so when I found out about this horror film that everyone was going a little bit nuts over and the entire thing is one long Zoom call, I was like, ugh, I don't think I could do this. But late one night, I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this show a look. It only goes for an hour. Like, I'll turn it off in 15 minutes, I'm sure. I was captivated, wow. Chris. I was completely riveted by this program. It is outstanding. The premise of it is you've got, and it didn't even dawn on me that they were British until I started uh, reading up in a production afterwards. But you've got four women. They are like early 20s. They're on a Zoom chat together. They have regular sort of catch-ups via Zoom because everyone's isolated in their apartments and they're not going anywhere. It's very much a film that's set of the moment. So this is a recently filmed production that they just pushed out onto the internet and, you know, we're sitting in our lounge rooms watching this thing. So you've got four women who are doing this sort of regular catch-up. And because they've been doing it regularly and because they want a bit of entertainment, they've been spicing up their Zoom chats. They try to get like a guest on and they try to do fun things. On this night, they decide to get someone who's in touch with their spiritual world to do a seance with them. Right. Sitting down watching a movie about four girls doing a seance on a streaming service called Shudder. What could go wrong? And obviously one of them ends up uh, having a little bit of a joke and makes up a person. And that's seen as disrespecting the spirit world. And so someone from the spirit world comes to, you know, tidy up some business. Anyway, it is freaky as heck, Chris. I was on the edge of my seat and I wouldn't say there was a moment where my heart was pounding and I'm like, I can't watch this anymore. But it was just at that exact right level where you were thoroughly engaged with what's going on. You know where all of this is heading. But my God, you want to see how that thing rolls out. Wow. It's imaginative. It's clever. And because it's a Zoom uh, call, like you are watching the split screen and you never see anyone not on screen. Like there's times where characters leave the room and go to the toilet or whatever and sort of come back. So there are moments where you don't see everyone on screen for that entire time. But for the majority, you're just watching everyone in a complete performance for an hour. And it's kind of like a stage show where you're actually watching practical effects taking place and all sorts of like wild things live as part of this streamed experience. Yeah, fire out. I mean, it it makes sense, right, that we're going to see, like it makes sense that not every kind of thing that you film in front of the, using this Zoom kind of idea is going to be good, but it also makes sense that not everything's going to be bad. Somebody's got to get it right and do something interesting with it. Yeah. It's nice to see that starting to happen. And that's it. Like essentially I went into it expecting to walk away saying, hey, look, it was a noble effort. I saw what they were doing there, you know, good on them, but it's legitimately a good movie. People are talking about this being like one of the great sort of 20 horror movies of all time. And I think that might be a fair call. Like it's really good. Is it similar to like, you know, so uh, when we had the Blair Witch Project, you know, this was a thing where a lot of people were like, uh, you know, and that that felt very similar to me going in as in like, oh God, this is going to be horrible to watch. And I don't think I'm going to handle it, but obviously really enjoyed it and scared the shit out of me when I did watch it. Um, do you think it's going to kind of have that same sort of impact about, oh, wow, we can do these horror films in a different way? Look, that's look. Blair Witch is a really good comparison point purely because of that expectation versus what you actually receive from it. And I did feel the same way. I went as a Blair Witch and I saw Blair Witch a bit before the hype sort of came in. So there was a bit of hype, but like I managed to like catch it right before it just like went completely yeah, sort of yeah, nuts. Yeah. Where so you were able to kind of make your own like, mind up about it. Yeah, I saw it before it went, I saw it before it went mainstream, yeah. I guess is the way to phrase it. So like nothing had been ruined for me and I just sort of saw it for what it was. And like, that was a really cool experience and I really enjoyed that. But the point of comparison I'd use for this film is probably more your Paranormal Activity movies. Because Paranormal Activity takes that same idea as Blair Witch had, which is them walking around the forest with a video camera, found footage uh, movie. 
but like they're doing it through security camera footage. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Home, which makes more sense to me. I think it's more realistic that you're watching that security cam footage as opposed to a guy who's walking around with a camcorder <laughs> that just happens to catch it oh all. Oh my God. Doesn't put the camera down for the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's always, there's always a bit of like backbending to try to get to the point where you understand that that person's not going to put down his camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always a little bit sort of rough to watch, but this was that perfect merger of uh, form, technology and situation that just came through to be something I think really quite special. Excellent. Well, this is good timing, of course, because we've got um, the scary movie season coming up um, very soon. The horror films. Maybe we should do a, can we do a special uh, horror episode of Always Be Watching? Are we just going to talk about Simpsons Treehouse of Horror Specials? <laughs> we could get our mate um, Simon on. He'd like to have a chat about um, this kind of stuff, I'm sure. Well, he does have his movie festival, Monster Fest, which is kicking off in, I think, three weeks. Almost the exactly same time. Yeah, yeah. So that would that might be cool, except he's probably too busy. But yeah, I feel like, you know, I have I have um, definitely dropped the ball or I've, or I've stepped outside of that sort of horror movie zone. You know, in, in recent years, having kids and having um, a partner who's not very into that kind of stuff, you know, it means you sort of end up having to do it by yourself and it's, it just doesn't happen as often. But I would be really keen. I'm super keen to get scared again and to watch some stuff that's different. I got to tell you too, the sort of that, that real um, gore porn sort of stuff like sore and that that'll kind of put me off for a little while too because i i, I wasn't that into mm. that kind of aspect of it but i really enjoy well, the industry was kind of swamped by that stuff for a few years yeah and that kind of is where i tuned out but like you know definitely often you see you know real good um advancements in storytelling and um people making really big risks to, you know over the history of horror films that's where a lot of these things have happened first so it's great to see some um new things and it's great that a service like shutter exists to be able to kind of put a bit of money and take it seriously and breed some new ideas there right yeah and shutter like i'm not a huge horror guy but i did plunk down for a year subscription to it because you know it's like it's pretty good i think it's like 55 bucks or something for yeah the year. Wow. i'll get my 55 bucks out of that it's like, like going to the movies twice <laughs> i mean pretty much <laughs> but yeah anyway so that's currently streaming on shutter it only goes for 60 minutes it's a really cool watch so we talked about three things this week in backwards order because i can't remember what we talked about at the beginning because it was all 35 minutes ago uh, we've talked about the host, which, sorry, host, no the, it's like Facebook, it's cooler without the the. It's called Host, it's on Shutter. We talked about Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, which you can find streaming now on Disney+. And I kick things off with a talk about Feels Good Man. Feels Good Man. Which is the very good documentary about the Pepe character and how he got horribly subverted. Before we get out of here, I just want to do my little quick update of things that I've finally watched that you've been recommending me to watch for the last four years and I haven't watched yet. But I did, sure. I, Dan, I did sit down and watch the first episode of Mr. Robot. And i got to tell you, I'm pretty into Mr. Robot. You could have pushed it to me a little bit harder, I feel like. You know, just every conversation, once a week for four years wasn't quite enough. <sighs> I, I can't sigh loud <laughs> enough. No, it's really good. I, it was it was definitely more than I was expected. Uh, and I know, you know, there was some heavy-handed stuff in that first episode, which I'm sure will even out. You can tell it's going to even out a little bit more. And oh, it totally I'm does. I'm just really, um, really into it. Christian Slater, whew. It's got, you know, he's amazing. So, yeah, great stuff. Thanks for recommending. Sorry it took me so long to watch it. Yeah, now just got to watch the Carmichael show. <laughs> Righto. I'm about two years into that now, so we'll see what happens okay. in 2022. Yeah, give me another two years. <laughs> anyway, folks. This has been Always Be Watching. We'll be back next week. Maybe talking about horror stuff. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I think yeah. so. We should give that a go. Prepare to get scared. It's going to be a spooky <laughs> episode of the Always Be Watching. But anyway, in the meantime, you can find Chris online and places. You can find me in other places, Twitter, Facebook, all that. Uh, do a search for The Dan Barrett. You can usually find me around the place. The. If you like this podcast, leave a review. It helps other people find the podcast. 
There is the website, alwaysbewatching.com. Sign up there for a daily newsletter that comes out with screen culture stuff. Uh, there's going to be lots of conversations about Mandalorian over the next week. So if that uh, floats your boat, you know, <laughs> go. It does. If that raises your, what's the name of the ship? <laughs> Razor Crest. If that raises your crest, hey, give it a look. Yeah. This podcast has been a televised revolution production. We'll be back next week with more Always Be Watching. Sorry, Chris. Only I may dance.